0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. Uh, This is one of the uh, strangest and probably most uncomfortable passages in the Bible. But as uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, we believe that even this chapter has something to teach us. So Follow along uh, with me as I read for us Genesis 38, beginning in verse... 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to remain in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend, Hira the Adolamite. Now, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her as she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the, the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the called prostitute who was at Anam at the roadside? And they said, no called prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no call prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter in law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. May God bless the reading of his word. So Moses, the author of Genesis, is brutally honest in describing the flawed character of Judah. In Genesis 37, it was Judah, after all, who said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother Joseph?' and conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites instead. Judah gave no thought to God's promise to Abraham, the promise that we've followed over the course of our study in Genesis. I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's in Genesis 12, verses two to three. Promises that would later be repeated to his father, Jacob. Jacob. It would seem as though Judah did not care about God's promises or about his family after going through with the plan to sell Joseph the brothers slaughtered a goat dipped Joseph's blood or Joseph's robe in the blood and sent the robe to their father with this message This we have found please identify whether it is your son's robe or not Jacob did indeed recognize it as Joseph's robe and his reaction to his favorite son's alleged death is recorded for us in Genesis 37 verses 34 to 35. Then Jacob tore his garments put on put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him but he refused to be comforted and said no I shall go down to Sheol to the place of the dead to my son. Mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so we see that Judah's leadership among his brothers has led to the the loss of a brother and, moreover, the, the lifelong sorrow for his father. And it's at this point that we would expect to continue where Genesis 37 left off with Joseph in slavery. In Egypt, but instead the story of Joseph is interrupted, as it were, by this awkward episode about Judah and Tamar. We may wonder why this particular chapter is included in Holy Scripture, but as we will see, this awkward interruption about Judah's family line is an important link to the lineage of Jesus. Genesis 38 verse 1 begins, it happened at that time, the time when Joseph arrived in Egypt, that's how Genesis 37 concludes, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, read there, a Canaanite, whose name was Hira. Now, you may remember that Joseph had been forcibly Removed from God's covenant family. But here Judah voluntarily leaves Judah's covenant family. And what does he do? He makes friends, makes friends with the Canaanites. The Canaanites, as you may remember, were those who had been cursed by God. We saw that in Genesis 9, verse 25. And they were the ones who would one day be dispossessed of their land. Genesis 15, verse 16. Judah's great grandfather Abraham had solemnly charged his servants, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. That was in Genesis 24 verse 3. And when Isaac sent Judah's father, Jacob, off to to Mesopotamia, he charged him, you must not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. That was in Genesis 28 verse 1. And so this was an act of disobedience on Judah's part. Judah knew full well that he must not be joined with the Canaanites, but he does so anyway. And it is shortly after befriending Hira that he sees an attractive Canaanite woman and he marries her. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her. And so we see, just like Eve with the forbidden fruits in Genesis 3, verse 6, and just like the sons of God with the daughters of man in Genesis 6, verse 2, and just like Pharaoh with Abraham's wife Sarah in Genesis 12, verse 15. And just like Shechem with Jacob's daughter Dinah in Genesis 34, verse 2. So also Judah saw and he took. He saw and he took. He saw this nameless Canaanite woman and he took her for himself. You could say it was lust at first sight. Again, Judah seemingly doesn't care about God's promises and he doesn't care about his family. He cares only about what will satisfy his desires in the moment. In that regard, he's a little bit like Esau, isn't he? He sees what he likes and he takes it for himself. The question is, will God bless with children this union between Judah and this Canaanite woman? Well, to our surprise, in quick succession, that is exactly what happens. They receive three children. Verse three, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. So we see the Judas family. It's looking pretty promising at this particular point, you know, with the the, the births of, of these three sons. After all, Uh, Adam, Noah, and Terah each had three sons of their own as well. Well, after the children had all grown up, verse six says that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar's name means palm tree, which has connotations of having a a beautiful figure and, and being fruitful. Like in Song of Solomon 7, verse 7, your stature is like that of a palm tree. Unfortunately, Tamar is not fruitful in her marriage. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We're not told what Ur did to receive such judgment, but whatever he did was wicked. In the sight of the Lord. One commentator notes Not since the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah has God taken the life of one who displeased him. And there it was groups who were annihilated. Ur is the first individual in Scripture whom Yahweh kills. That is significant. It is also significant that Ur's death leaves Tamar now a childless widow. In that culture, uh, a widow without children was not only considered to be destitute, it would also be considered a failure. But there is still hope for Tamar. There is still hope for Tamar. In verse eight, Judah says to his second son, Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now that sounds kind of odd in our cultural context. Uh, But what Judah is referring to here is the Near Eastern custom of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. It was uh, something that was... um, It was a custom that was performed among a a number of the surrounding nations, including uh, Israel. But it would later be codified in the law of God. In Deuteronomy 25, verses five to six, the Lord says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In the Gospels, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus with a question, and it's pertaining to Leveret Marriage, indicating that it was still in force in Jesus' day. So, this is something that uh, we, we see happening for a significant period of time. Here, Judah is not ordering Onan to marry Tamar, but only that he would raise up offspring for his deceased brother. Tamar would not become Onan's wife but would remain his sister-in-law. It was was a way to give her a descendant, not a husband. Judas here seems unconcerned, though, about the welfare of Tamar. Notice that uh, he never calls her by her name. It's just simply your brother's wife or your sister-in-law. He seems only concerned about getting offspring for his dead son, However, Onan cares not for Tamar at all. Verse 9, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. Onan is a greedy and wicked individual. He does not wish to produce a son for his dead brother because then that son would be considered the firstborn and would thus receive a double portion of the inheritance. He refuses to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to Tamar and instead he uses her for his own gratification. And he does this not once or twice, but every time that they came together, together, every time that they had intercourse. As a result, verse 10 says that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and God put him to death also. The Lord takes Onan's life for refusing to fulfill his responsibilities to Tamar and to his deceased brother. God had repeatedly promised the patriarchs that he would make them fruitful. That's why he said, Go forth and multiply with that blessing. By refusing to fulfill his responsibilities, one commentator said, Onan is deliberately frustrating the fulfillment of these promises. His action demonstrates his opposition to the divine agenda. And for this reason, the Lord let him die. Well, with only one son left, Judah faces a terrible predicament. You see, custom dictated that he now give Tamar to his third son, Shelah. But Judah believes that the problem is not with his sons, but that the problem lies with Tamar. He fails to see that the Lord has in fact put his two sons to death for their wickedness. And as such, he does not wish to risk his last son, on her. So what does he do? Verse 11, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die just like his brothers. In fact, Judah has no intentions of uh, giving Tamar to his son Shelah. If, If Shelah also died, then Judah would be in the same predicament as Tamar. He'd be childless. Now Judah does end up kind of promising her to Sheila, and so you know, in a sense, for the time being, uh, Tamar is in this state of limbo. Right? She she's betrothed to Sheila, and and thus cannot marry anyone else. And at the same time, it's unlikely that Judah is going to give her to Sheila. Well, Judah essentially, he, he washes his hands of the situation by sending her back to her father's house. But that's not where she belongs. She belongs in the house of Judah, but rather care for his widowed daughter-in-law. Judah shifts the responsibility, the, the, the problem, as it were, onto others. And in a sense, Judah acts wickedly here just like his sons yet we see tamar quietly obey judah and she does in fact go to live in her father's house and it's at this point that we come to the the next act in this drama verse 12 in the course of time literally after many days the wife of judah she daughter died When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. When Judah's time of mourning, the death of his wife, was over, he went up to his sheep shears. Now one commentator writes, The uh, the hard and dirty work of shearing sheep was accompanied by a festival that was noted for hilarity and much wine drinking. By now, Sheila is all grown up, and Tamar is keenly aware that Judah has failed to hold up his head of the bargain by giving her to Sheila. Verse thirteen: When Sheila was told, "Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep," she took off her widow, widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. You'll, you'll notice how Tamar is still dressed in her widow's garments from the deaths of her husbands, unlike Judah, who is, uh, he, well, he's completed his, his time of mourning. One commentator noted that uh, Tamar may have continued to wear such clothing beyond the usual period as a symbol of the unfulfilled Leveret obligation. Almost as if to say uh, to, to Judah that he still has an obligation, a responsibility to her. Now throughout the first half of the narrative, Tamar has been, well, she's being passive and obedient After the the death of her husband, Ur, she passively accepts the sexual encounters of her brother-in-law, Onan, even though he misuses her for his own gratification. And when the Lord puts Onan to death, uh, Tamar quietly obeys Judah by returning to her father's house until Sheila has come of age. But now, when she realizes that she is being deceived by Judah, She takes matters into her own hands. She swings into action to raise up offspring for her dead husband, even if she has to prostitute herself to do so. Just like Rebecca hurriedly uh, disguised her son Jacob as his brother in order to deceive Isaac. So also Tamar hurriedly disguises herself as a prostitute in order to deceive Judah. Her plan is risky, though. Right? She poses as a prostitute along the way that Judah will be traveling in order to conceive a son by her father-in-law. But as one who was betrothed, if she were found out to be playing the harlot, she would face the death penalty. Leviticus 20, verse 12 says, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion.
1: Their blood
0: is upon them. Will Tamar succeed in deceiving Judah? Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Tamar uh, apparently excels at playing the part of a prostitute. She says to Judah, what will you give me that you may come into me? Judah answers, I will send you a young goat from the flock. The fact that Judah carried nothing with him at that particular moment indicates that he likely wasn't planning on Meeting a prostitute that day, and that this is simply acting on impulse. Verse 17, Tamar says, If you give me a pledge until you send it, right, she's she's smart. Judah says, What pledge shall I give you? She replies, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now the the signet or seal, that, that was Judah's Mark of identification that he would have worn uh, around his neck and then his staff that was a that was a symbol of authority. In, in other words, uh, these were extremely personal items. It would be like handing over to a stranger our, our driver's license and credit card or you know like a passport or or a social insurance number you know some, something. Something extremely personal like that. And amazingly, Judah gives this unknown prostitute his personal items as as collateral for a small goat. Verse 18. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So we see that Tamar's back in the safety of her father's house. But in the meantime, she's, she's pregnant. She's pregnant by Judah himself. Judah, of course, he wants his, his personal items back as quickly as possible. And he doesn't want to make it look like he was with a prostitute. And so he, he sends his friend, Hira the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. The only problem is that he can't find her because she's not there. And so in verse 21, Judah's friend, he asks around, Where is the called prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? But they replied, No called prostitute has been here. So he returns and, and relays. This information to, to Judah, I, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no called prostitute is being here. And, and Judah replies, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent her this young goat and you did not find her. Notice the, the irony here. There's a fair bit of, of irony. Uh, Judah attempts to pay his debt to this prostitute, even though he has failed to keep a more important pledge to uh, his daughter-in-law Tamar by arranging the the marriage between her and and his son Shelah. And just as uh, Jacob deceived Isaac by wearing Esau's personal items and goat skin, and just as Judah deceived Jacob by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood, so also Tamar's deception of Judah, involves both personal items and a goat. So you see just the connections throughout Genesis here. Judah seems concerned only about his reputation, though. As one commentator put it, uh, he is like a reputable gentleman who unwittingly loses his credit card in a brothel. He doesn't want to become a laughingstock. Yet he's unconcerned about the continuing disgrace that Tamar is, of course, facing as a childless widow in her father's house. He cares more about his reputation than hers. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. In Israel, the the usual punishment for adultery was uh, death by stoning. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24 says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. But Judah, he demands an even more cruel Death for Tamar, death by burning. Without so much as a trial, Judah orders that Tamar be brought outside the the city gate and burned. No no doubt Judah still holds Tamar responsible for the, the deaths of two of his sons. He has customarily betrothed her to his last son, but he likely doesn't want to see that happen, lest Sheila die as well. And so here's an opportunity to get rid of her, to put away this whole issue. Tamar, we see, waits until the very last moment to defend herself. Verse 25, as she is being brought out, she sent word to her father in law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. When Jacob was presented with Joseph's bloodied robe, his sons instructed him to identify whether it belonged to Joseph or not. And it says that he identified them. While holding Judah's personal items in her hands, Tamar demands Judah to identify whose they are. And verse 26 says that he identified them. Tamar has staked her life on this pledge. This this pledge that would publicly establish the father of the child, In such a way that Judah himself had no choice but to declare her as innocent. Suddenly Judah's eyes are opened. He had not recognized her when she was a prostitute at Anaim, but now, now he sees clearly she was the prostitute and he is thus the father. Judah declares, "She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila." It's not to say that uh, Tamar acted consistently with God's standard of rightness, as Tamar does still fall short here in this passage. But Judah admits that Tamar is justified in taking matters into her own hands. She was right. At least more right than, than he was to have done what she did. And thus we see this is the beginning of Judah's transformation. After this, Judah will return to his brothers. He'll show concern for his elderly father, Jacob. He'll offer himself as a slave to Joseph for his brother, Benjamin's freedom. And Jacob will ultimately bestow upon Judah the greatest blessing of all. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Genesis 49, verses eight to 12. By God's grace, Judah would become this man. But in this narrative, the Canaanite woman Tamar is the heroine. Through her courage and determination to have children, the line of Judah would continue and God's promise to Abraham, a blessing, all the families of the earth would be fulfilled. It It could continue on through Tamar. Just as Jacob and Esau wrestled in their mother Rebecca's womb. So also twins struggled together in Tamar's womb. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And so we see Tamar's deception of Judah results in the births of twins, Perez and Zerah which ultimately restores the number of Judah's sons back to three. But the midwife is shocked. Why is she shocked? Because the child who should have been second somehow bypasses the first. But as we've seen before, such is the work of God. Just like with Jacob and Esau, God elects whom he wills. But God's glorious design doesn't end there. No, just as there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and just as there were 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, so also the book of Ruth closes with a record of 10 generations from Perez to King David, a full number of generations. Ruth verses four, Ruth chapter four, verses 18 to 22 says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. And and we see both both Perez and David are the younger sons, insignificant by human standards, but chosen by God to carry on the line of the seed of the woman. Because we see that God's glorious design doesn't just end there either. Perez would not only be the forefather of King David, he would also be the forefather of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter one, we get a, a look at Jesus' genealogy. In Matthew chapter one, we read Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and then then later on, we see, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, contrary to the custom of the day, which excluded women from genealogies, Matthew lists five women in Jesus' genealogy, four of whom were foreigners. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, was a Hittite. But God included all four foreign women in his covenant family. But but not only that, God gave them the honor and privilege of being foremothers of the Messiah despite their potentially scandalous pasts. Their potentially scandalous marital unions. Great Tamar had to play the harlot to conceive Perez. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth, who was also a childless widow of an Israelite, went to the threshing floor to solicit Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. And Bathsheba had an adulterous relationship with King David, who subsequently had her husband killed and then married her. Each of these women came from Judah's family line. Yet in spite of their, their many sins and shortcomings, by God's design, they would be links in the chain to the Messiah. As one commentator noted, each of these women prepares the way for Mary, whose marital situation is also peculiar, given the fact that she is pregnant but has not yet had sexual relations with her betrothed husband, Joseph. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree, on the one hand, foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ, and on the other hand, Blunts any attack on Mary. God had worked his will. In the midst of whispers of scandal. And so we see the, the narrative of Judah and Tamar. It declares loud and clear. That in Christ there was hope. For sinners like us. There was hope for sinners like us. We, you see we will all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. We we all have a propensity to rebel against the king of the universe. But this narrative gives us hope that God is still in the business of exposing our sin and affirming our need for Jesus. This narrative gives us hope that God has not exhausted his grace for us, It gives us hope that that God is at work in those who believe both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, verse 13. Despite our scandalous past, which aren't just whispers of scandal, their, their scandal is loud and clear. Despite our scandalous past, Jesus left the glory of heaven to be born in human likeness. And he was obedient to the point of death on a cross on our behalf, though he was entirely righteous himself. So that all who believe in him would be forgiven of all their sins. That's the hope that this narrative of Judah and Tamar gives us. What grace is ours through Christ our Lord. What a God is ours for those who believe. May we with, with praise and thanksgiving then bow ourselves at the feet of the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and give him all praise and thanksgiving for his wonderful work of providence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your abundant grace. We talked about grace in the remembrance service. Talking about grace here never gets old. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb we pray that you would give us hearts to believe, mouths to repent and to worship that we might follow you all the days of our life. And for those who here who, who do not know you, we pray that their hearts would be opened to receive you this morning. We pray this